Welcome to Season 2 of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech companies. Andrew Schubart is an experienced EdTech executive and board member who spent more than two decades working in the digital and offline education management and training industry throughout Asia. As executive vice president and board member of Allo7, China's largest digital publisher and B2B content solutions provider, Andrew oversaw digital curriculum development and provided English language learning guidance for the entire company and the 10,000 schools that utilized Allo7 products. Andrew is also the lead consultant for CCTV's educational English programming and an internationally renowned expert on children's ELL production, teaching theory, practical teaching, and the use of technology to empower teachers, children, and parents in the digital age. Before joining Allo7, Andrew founded and operated William Language Schools, a chain of 17 ELL schools in Taiwan. Seeing new opportunities to help a larger group of students, he moved to Shanghai, joined the Disney English team, where he was the first employee of the Disney English joint venture, served as its first language learning director, and opened the first five Disney education learning centers. He was also a leading creator of Disney English's Scope and Sequence, their digital and print content, and he hired the first 100 local and foreign Disney English teaching staff members. Andrew Schubart, welcome to EdTech Insiders. It's great to be here, Alex. It's really a true honor. It's really great to have you here. Andrew, you're a really unique guest for this podcast because you've spent years building a major EdTech business in China. ALO7, which provides courseware, learning platforms, tutoring, assessments, you know, reaches a lot of students. Give us a little bit of a background and your history of how you first got into ed tech in China and how you got to your work at ALO7. Sure. Well, I kind of stumbled into it. I studied economics at Vanderbilt and did a few programs studying trade patterns between Taiwan, mainland China, and the U.S., And that led me to get a customs broker's license, which has nothing to do with ed tech. I moved to Taiwan with the goals of setting up a sourcing company and learning Mandarin. And while I was there in order to stay and keep a visa, I was teaching. And I found that, wow, it really spoke to me. I was so passionate about teaching kids and just how education can impact families and impact society. And so I shifted into uh, full-time teaching. And in the year 2000, so three years after I had arrived, I set up my first brick and mortar school. And by the time that I left Taiwan to move to mainland China, I had 17 schools and a publishing company, which I sold. At that time in the year 2008, I was working with uh, the Walt Disney Company to help them write their operating guides because they wanted to get with the success of you know Disney Magic English and a few of their different curriculums that they offered from Disney Consumer publishing group, they wanted to get in the offline business and wanted to open schools. And so actually the first Disney schools, Disney English schools in the entire world were opened in China. And I opened the first five of those. So I wrote the operating guide. I wrote a lot of the content. And what was interesting about that is with my schools in Taiwan, I had written the content from the ground up. So I had a publishing company. I wrote my own books. Uh, Whereas with Disney, we had to take existing Disney properties. And when I say properties, I mean movies or cartoons and things like that, like The Incredibles or Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella and build content around those existing digital elements. And that's really the first time I got into kind of quote unquote ed tech. So I worked with the production team back in Glendale in the US while I was living in Shanghai to build a scope and sequence, identify those target language items within films and then have them pull those artifacts or items from the different digital content that we had created and build courseware. We had print materials as well. We also used, at the time, this was called a Centeo. So they were clickers in the classroom. So they would be little mini assessments throughout the class. And one cool thing about those is we were teaching kids as young as two years old. Now, we didn't really use the Centeos at that age, but around the age of four or five, they had these clicking devices 
And they didn't know their numbers. So if you said A, B, C, or D for the choices, or one, two, three, four is the choices, they may get confused. So we actually use shape. So we had circle, X, square, and triangle so that they could identify, which I thought was a nice little, uh, little touch to do that. But it was very clunky in the beginning because you had to pair the machines, make sure they were paired at the right student. And you know, when you, when you're having only a 45 minute class, it ate up a lot of time. But that was kind of my first for real foray into ed tech and building something with the support of the Disney team. But it was quite fun. But what I realized is after having opened, you know, more than 20 offline schools, I was really only serving high income, high net worth, individual, medium net worth individuals. And I, we were physically restricted in terms of we could only teach those students who kind of lived in that area or were able to travel to that area. And I thought, why not build the best content and the best platform and then leverage the network of schools that already exist in China, of which there are millions of schools in China, and just give them the best content and the best platform. And that's why in 2009, we set up Allo7 and started building from there. And that journey was interesting as well, because it took us quite a few different business models to figure out what kind of finally ended up working. Initially, we had, you know, a virtual world that we put on some of these gaming websites that, that kids would go to and they would log in and play on our virtual world, adopt an avatar, things like that, and then play some of our learning games. And then we had a call center and we'd call the parents and say, hey, your child's been playing on our website. It's a learning website. If you'd like to have more information about it, we can, you know, give you some more information. And we had a sell through rate of about, you know, it was premium. So to sell, to upgrade to premium, it was about 1.5%. And at that time, my partner and I thought that was, that was pretty bad. But in reality, I guess that's pretty good. Once I kind of learned more about the freemium, premium businesses, we attempted to go business to government and sell into public schools, but that's such a legacy with Oxford Press, as well as, you know, some of the other larger presses out there, larger publishers out there. And then we settled on B2B. So we still had the virtual world, but in order for the students to, you know, motivate and to get onto that, we were selling directly into these private language institutes. And that model took off and did great. So we had our core curriculum. We had our authoring tools. We had apps for students, parents, and teachers. We could give dashboard views to the principals of these schools to show usage. Teachers could look down at a specific cohort, compare their different classes, compare students within a class, and then parents got individual tailored reports after every class and, and when they did their homework. So we really tried to, I looked at it as in education, there are four different stakeholders. There are the principals or the owners of a school. And remember, these are private schools, not public schools. You have teachers, you have parents, and you have students. And each one of those users or kind of character profiles wants something different. Principals, they open those schools because they want to make money. It's a profit-driven business. Teachers, they want something that's easy to use. You can give them the best program in the world, but if there's a large learning curve, they're not going to use it because they want to fall back on what they're used to. Parents, they want to see results. So you need to make sure that your content is related back to what they're being tested on in public schools and kind of nationwide, you know, Gaokao and Zhongkao, like the middle school test and the high school test. And then finally, what do kids want all over the world? Doesn't matter. China, America want to have a good time. They just want to have fun. And so we had to satisfy all of those desires or needs from each of those different segments in order to be successful. And I think we did that quite well. So that's how the long story of how I got into the ed tech business and how we made Allo7 the number one digital publisher in, in China with 15 million registered users. It's an amazing story. You clearly learned Mandarin at some point along that journey. I know you went there to, to learn it in the first place, went to Taiwan to learn in the first place. It's really interesting, all these different models. I think a lot of our EdTech Insider listeners will recognize a lot of the interesting things you're saying here. The idea of having to satisfy multiple stakeholders who have very different demands, the B2B model, and the idea of creating courseware and learning platforms that can scale rather than work within, you know, a particular region. And a lot of these things are sort of supercharged in China, the urban rural divide, the number of schools, the number of private schools. It's a really interesting story. You know, one of the things that the superpowers that I think you've gained over, over these 15 years building in China, both with Disney and with uh, Allo7, 
is the ability to create learning experience that really resonate with kids and with Chinese kids, Chinese learners uh, specifically. So you've mentioned a little bit about this, but dive a little deeper into LL7's philosophy of learning, of how to reach the kids and how you sort of combined effective education practices, get those outcomes with the fun gaming elements that kids want. Certainly. And that's, at the end of the day, that was always my goal was for kids to have fun. If kids are having fun, you know, Allo 7 in Chinese is I Le Qi, which means I is the character for love. Le is happiness and Qi is Qi Miao, curiosity. So if a child is curious, it doesn't matter what subject they're in or they're attempting to study, they're going to learn. So I think they're having fun, you know, developing curiosity within kids. So within Allo 7's virtual world that I mentioned, students adopt an avatar. These avatars, it comes with a very rich backstory. They came from another planet and the students need to help them navigate through our virtual world. The virtual world was based on actual Earth. I saw so many other virtual worlds out there that were based on some fantasy land. When the students, they relate to the world around them. And there are so many interesting things about our own Earth that students can be learning. So they have the opportunity to explore the real world and learn about different countries like Australia, South Africa's Kruger National Park and the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. We felt that our own world was so interesting and students love to travel around and learn about different cultures and the local environments. It also allowed for rich settings for our learning games. For example, music games that were set at the Sydney Opera House. We had a very cool Tour de France spelling game where your cyclist pedals faster, the quicker and more accurately you type. So they have the cultural element there, but they also have the kind of learning game element. In order to play these games, travel, or buy items within the virtual world, students needed to spend virtual currency. And I saw, I still remember my niece, I won't name the app, but her, my sister's credit card was paired with the app. Mm. And in one game, my niece racked up, I think it was like $800 worth of charges on a credit card without my sister even knowing what was going on. And I think that's just so, just not the right thing to do is to trick parents and you know, I felt that that was kind of uh, cheating the system and trying to, you know, ill-gotten gains, basically. And so in order to play our games, as I mentioned, the students need to spend that virtual currency. However, our currency could not be purchased with money like a lot of the apps, like I just mentioned, that you see in app stores. Rather, it was earned by completing homework assigned by the teachers based on the in-class content. That's the only way that pe- that they could earn currency was by accomplishing learning tasks or doing things that the teacher had assigned to them. This created a strong positive feedback loop where students needed to complete homework, which they would have had to do regardless. So, I mean, it was something that they were going to do, but you're incentivizing them to do it in order to fully participate in the virtual world. Another approach that I'm a huge fan of is content-based learning. I feel that rote learning is not very effective at meaningful language acquisition. Students lack a context when learning through that rote method. So the language feels forced. And there's no emotional pull. That was one good thing about Disney and something that I learned was students really care about the characters. So if you write good stories, you're going to have successful students. By providing a context or a background story, it makes sense to the students as they negotiate the meaning of learning targets within themselves as they make sense of a language. And then also externally as they negotiate meaning with other students when they communicate in that second language. Another concept that Allo7 did very well was a parallel set of readers that accompanied the main curriculum. Most reader programs like Magic Treehouse, which is great, their content is excellent. They're standalone. They're kind of like a bolt-on and they have no relationship with the, no meaningful relationship with the target language of the core curriculum that's being taught as an ESL or an EFL program. The students have a main textbook and the readers don't match the content with regards to language, tense, or even ability level. We developed our reader program in unison with our core curriculum. So the students reviewing previously introduced two tenses and language targets. Another fun aspect of our reader series was that they were written, quote unquote, by the avatars who the students had adopted. This was done to instill in the students a sense that if their avatars can create these stories, the students could as well. Later on in the Allo 7 curriculum, as they grew, Students had creative writing assignments in which they had to create their own stories. And after seeing that their quote unquote friends had done this before, I think that task became less daunting and much more enjoyable. 
So I always looked at it as, you know, build good content, but make it easy to use. And you're going to satisfy those two big user groups, the teachers who are going to, you know, they have, you have to have their buy-in, but then also the students to make them, you know, really interested in it. So that's basically my philosophy. And, and that's what led kind of the Aloe 7 production team and the curriculum development team. That's a, it's a really wonderful structure. And, and I, you know, it, it strikes me as I listen to you talk about this, the Allo 7 program and curriculum that it feels so, you know, joyful. It's about exploration. It's about creativity, storytelling, all sorts of really sort of very humanistic, you know, elements of the, these avatars writing stories. It's really lovely. I think for some of our listeners, and I would say even for myself, I think we sometimes have this stereotype of, of Chinese learning. If you look at, you know, the PISA scores, uh, the last PISA OECD PISA exam in 2018, you see the, you know, the Chinese regions, uh, you know, Beijing and Shanghai, the urban regions, uh, Jiangsu and Zhejiang, who they, they put them all together as the number one in the world in almost every subject. And, you know, Macau and Hong Kong get incredibly high scores. Girls tend to score higher in reading, boys in math and science. And I think sometimes people in the U.S., we look at Chinese education and think, oh, yeah, you know, they're getting great scores because it's super intensive. It's rote learning. They're totally deferential for teachers. They just do all their homework. They do everything they're told to do. And then they get way, way ahead. But there's not that much joy and creativity. And it's such a different picture than what you're what you're outlining right here. So are these stereotypes, you know, rooted in reality? Or are they totally wrong? Or are there aspects of, you know, different elements of the Chinese education systems that have very different, you know, outcomes? That's a great question, and there are a lot of facets to it. I think it's public versus private. So public schools, average class size, over 40 students in a class. Each class section is only 45 minutes. How much meaningful, and with specific regard to language learning, how much can you do outside of rote in a public school setting? And that, I think, was a, was a problem. So I don't think that students got necessarily fluent or, you know, at good ability in their public school classes, they did learn what was going to be tested when mm-hmm. so teaching to the test and just trying to make sure that those test scores were, were kept, I guess, up to the level, up to the standard that they wanted to. However, what you do see in those urban areas are, you know, they're inundated with private language schools. Uh, there's New Oriental, TAAL, among others. Of the 11 publicly listed at the time, learning education companies within China, some listed here in the States, some listed in Hong Kong, some listed in China, 10 of them were my clients. And so I think the majority of parents were sending their students or sending their children to these after-school programs. And so I think it was a combination of what they saw in the public school and then what they saw after school that allowed them to have such good test results. With regard to what we see I find a lot of people have the perception that Chinese people are great at math. That's not always the case. You know, it's just like in America. We have people who are good at math. We have people who are not good at math. I just think that the subset of people who come over to the United States to study generally settle in the hard science fields. And so when you see that cut of society, then you're naturally going to make that uh, assumption that, oh, I guess all Chinese people are good at math, where you're just only viewing a specific subset of society that has been that has come over here to be educated in any type of Western setting. You know, there's definitely a lot more that are studying engineering, hard sciences, as opposed to, you know, art or, you know, liberal arts or something like that. And I so, so I think it's a combination of a few different things. It's the public school mindset versus the private school and the uptake on that. I think it depends on the different city as you go to, but Within Shanghai, about 25% or 26% of household disposable income was spent on education for their children. And that's outside of the public school. So that's going to math class. That's going to music class. That's going to English classes and, and going to even composition writing to learn how to write Chinese composition. That's huge. I have no idea what the spending is per American household, but 25% is a lot of money. And so I think that's where we're seeing that because they really value education and they really respect teachers, which I found to be, you know, made my career choice that much more rewarding was you had the support of the families believing that, you know, hey, education, I want to give my child the best education possible. That's a really interesting answer. And I I hear a lot of different 
pieces in that, you know, and on one hand, you have a public education system that maybe hasn't fully integrated some of these sort of creative, joyful practices. It is a little bit more rigid. But then parents are so interested in have accelerating their children's education that they're investing significant portions of their their disposable income into education. And that disposable income education is going to different types of solutions, language schools like the New Orientals, the TALs, you know, math academies, various things. And some of those really, I'm sure they're competitive with each other. So they're really looking to do something that has the outcomes that parents are looking for and the fun and interest that the kids are looking for, as you mentioned earlier. It's a it's a really you know, complex ecosystem. Extremely. It was funny because we would run demo classes, whether it was when I was at Disney or when I was working with some of my B2B partners. And it's your parents sit in the back of the classroom, the students attend a demo class. That's a simulation of what they would see in the normal class. And they were leveled. So we'd give them an IDA, an initial diagnostic assessment, and then, and then put them in different scheduled demos. And at the end of the day, the parents, they wanted to see that what their child was unable to do at the beginning of the class, they were able to do at the end of the class. And then they would turn and ask their kid every time. They'd say, did you have fun today? Do you want to go to this class? And so it really was a family decision. You know, it was the mother or father or sometimes even grandparents taking them to these demo classes. And then the kids saying, yeah, I want to sign up. This is where I want to be. So you, you really did have to balance that learning outcomes with engagement. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. I mean, China, as all our listeners know, is an absolutely enormous country, so many different regions, so many different types of everything. It's been urbanizing at the fastest rate in human history over the last you know few decades. But there are still many, many rural students in schools. And what, one of the criticisms of the PISA scores we mentioned is that they look disproportionately at the urban students and the urban students might be significantly outperforming the rural students because they have more expendable income to spend on these private schools. They're in, you know, much higher density areas. I'm curious what your experience was in China and what you sort of saw in terms of the difference between Chinese urban schooling like the Shanghai and, and Beijing and the rural schools that, that may have had really different uh, structures. Sure. That's a great question. And that's a very good call out. It really is dependent on those resources. One, the GDP in those areas is not as high. And then number two, the amount of schools that are in that area are less as well. I mean, for example, I'm probably, if not definitely one of the most traveled foreigners ever to go into China. You know, since we were B2B, we didn't service many rural areas, but I have been to 30 of the 34 provincial level administrative regions. And the four that I didn't visit were the lowest GDP ones in the entire country. There was simply no demand there. Either the parents didn't want it or there just physically didn't exist those schools that we could go and do business with. We did have some initiatives where students had their virtual currency and we would have a, a simulated vote where they would vote with their virtual currency and we would support projects like uh, donating uh, glasses to migrant workers, children, even like every day when you go to public school, you basically spend the entire day there. So there would be like sanitation kits in terms of like washcloths and things after they have lunch at school. So we did have some initiatives like that, but I never felt that we did enough in that area. And that's one of my biggest regrets is that we weren't able to kind of lift all boats with our efforts. I think given more time, and with maybe not some of the changes that came into came into play later, namely COVID and the double reduction policy, then we probably would have been on track to, to do more in those areas. But, you know, even given that with China's size and its growth, I still was able to visit and gave speeches and attended conferences in more than 150 cities. And these are 150 cities with over a million people in population. I mean, with the scale of Chinese cities I think that you've never heard, not you, but the people have never heard of would, would astound people. I've seen some of those amazing statistics about the number of cities in the U.S. that have over a million people, which is, I think, like nine. I don't think it's even the top 10 have over a million. And then in China, it's hundreds. And it just really, it really brings home the difference in scale of these two countries. And it's not that the U.S. is actually a small country. There's many, many countries a lot smaller than that. But uh, China is just massive. It's really interesting to hear about your about your travels. And, and it makes sense. I mean, for a country that big where there is so much urbanization, 
you know, the rural areas, I hate to say, you know, I, I mean, obviously nobody wants anybody to be left behind. And I, I, I can imagine your, you mentioned your regret about not being able to do more for them, but it's also, you know, the difference, you know, there's no infrastructure. There may be not, not enough teachers, there's long distances between places. There's so much, you know, so many obstacles to that. So even for somebody who's, you know, scale minded, ed tech minded like yourself, where you're making a platform that's used by all of these distribution channels, it still can't reach the far rural policy, the rural areas. It's really interesting to hear. You mentioned COVID and the double reduction policy and our, our listeners might might be very familiar with the double reduction policy, may not be that familiar. So let's just do a quick overview because Chinese head tech has been through quite the ringer over the last year and a half. Frequent listeners to the podcast will recognize that over the last year and a half, almost every story about China has been about this double reduction policy. It's not always named that, but it's these regulations. It's not always referred to as that. These regulations that the Chinese government put out on the edtech industry, which are totally draconian. I mean, they just are designed to shut down the industry. Everything has to go through state regulators. There's no foreign teachers allowed. It's just like designed to shut down the industry, literally. You've been right in the middle of this. You've been in China for this entire time. Tell us about what it's been like to be in China during the during COVID and then the double reduction policy. What is it? What has been the effect on the edtech market? So, Materials that are produced or sold in China have always had to go through government regulations. I think they're quite aware of what they want to be, what content they want to to be put in front of their children. But the double reduction kind of stepped that up. And they did have for the government, at least their rationale was, you know, for the longest time, it was a one child policy. And then they opened it up and said two child policy. Now it's even a three child policy. Well, in reality, People weren't having a second child or a third child. And if you go back to my previous part of the conversation, when I said people are spending 25% of their disposable income on one child, what happens when you have two? That's what, 50% of your disposable income now? You know, that's not enough money to go around. And so the government looked at, well, what are the parents? Why aren't they having children? And the biggest reason people came up with was it's too expensive to have kids. And in order to, I guess, ameliorate that or assuage the, you know, like fix the situation, they said, well, let's get rid of the private education schools. And that's a big expense that's going to come off the top for parents. And so this also ties back into that rural versus urban question as well. They didn't want, they wanted to level the playing field between the haves and the have nots because obviously the GDP in the rural versus the urban area is significantly different. So, it was kind of a double rationale there. One is we want people to have more children, but we also want to level the playing field between the haves and the have-nots. But the effect, <laughs> as can be predicted probably, is almost total devastation of the private K-12 market, which means my clients were going belly up or closing schools at an alarming rate. With COVID first and the double reduction policy, it really was a one-two punch. In 2020, I actually, in November of 2019, was giving a speech in Wuhan and then flew back to Shanghai. And there started to be some rumbling about, hey, there's some, you know, something going on, some respiratory issues. And then you remember March of 2020, that was when things went crazy, but it was already popping off in China at that time. But I was in Wuhan right when it was happening. So in 2020, most schools were not allowed to have in-person classes for the majority of the year which did help the online teaching business and services such as Zoom to take off, but it effectively killed private brick and mortar who had to pay rent. They had to make payroll every month. And, you know, although they do take a prepayment for the courses that they haven't delivered, that cash dries up a lot if you're not accruing courses attended over that period of time when you still have fixed expenses every month. When COVID restrictions were eased, the government introduced the double reduction policy which was loosely enforced at the beginning, but was fully rolled out in 2021. There was a lot of confusion from the time the policy was released. Schools were unclear and local governments had different levels of application. Some cities, it was, hey, you know, you're fine. You're still in, you know, compliance with the regulations. Whereas other cities, they would just come and say, you're no longer allowed to teach and we're taking your license away, basically. So, some cities that had no enforcement, business as usual prior to COVID, 
while the other cities had government workers come and just close their operations, you know, and they weren't allowed to do anything. Now schools cannot run or even attain like obtain licenses for language schools. There's still some that operate, but under a different license, teaching something other than English, i.e. sports or music, something like roller skating, where the medium of communication, the language of instruction is English. So the students are still getting some English input, but the subject that they're teaching is not the language itself. And so it really did a number on the education industry throughout China. I mean, you've seen TAL, the share price, their market value has plummeted along with New Oriental, along with pretty much every other one that even was lucky enough to stay stay alive during those two phenomenon that, that took place. I've never seen anything like it in terms of an industry just like liquidating, like, you know, within a few months, uh, you know, it's really interesting to hear you talk about the uneven rollout, because I think from the perspective over here, it felt like it just crashed. It just completely crashed. And one of the regulations was specifically that companies were not allowed to go public or be acquired. And, you know, for all the venture capital that had been going into China at a larger and larger rate for the last few years, that one regulation sort of does it because that's what people invest in when they're venture capitalists. They want something to either be acquired or IPO. And when it's not allowed by law, well, there's no point in investing. So the VC dried up immediately. But it's really interesting to hear that on the ground, it sort of came in these phases. So you first you knock out all these physical businesses because of COVID and people are are stuck at home, are not able to, to make their way around. And then the online businesses and all the English language businesses, all the foreign businesses, you know, in different kinds of curriculum are all wiped out. So, I mean, I just want to throw out some of the stats around this. You, you know these really well, but just for our listeners, you know, up to a million people were laid off between all of these different companies, some of which were very large laying off workers. You know, companies like New Oriental and TAL were laying off half of their workforce, which was I think 100,000 people at times all at once and then cutting the salaries of all the rest of them because it was just it, the whole business has disappeared. They estimate $100 billion wiped off of the education market cap uh, all at once. That's a class central estimate. We saw at least 25 online tutoring companies going bankrupt in 2021, just as this was starting, or I guess you, you mentioned 2021 is when it really went into effect and the entire industry has really collapsed. And, you know, something that I think is close to the, the hearts of our listeners, Whole on IQ is, you know, global ed tech intelligence platform. They track all the ed tech unicorns. And very recently, they just had, had to sort of shrug their shoulders and admit, and they took all of the Chinese companies basically off of their unicorns list. They said these are not worth over a billion dollars anymore, even though they were doing incredibly well. They took 11 companies off, including VipKid, VIP Kid, I think it's VipKid, NoBox, Yuan Fudao, Zhou Bang. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing this, and pretty much every company there. I mean, this was just a total decimation of the industry. And I'd love for you, you were, you've been sort of there this whole time to, to take us a little like travel back. You've done a little bit of this already, but like, before COVID, before double reduction, you know, these companies were enormous. I mean, they had so many learning centers, so many learners. Give us a, a little bit of a view of what it looked like in China when the ad tech ecosystem was booming and when venture was booming in 2019. Sure. All of those companies you listed, I have intimate knowledge of, and I even know there and am friends with their owners. Yuan Fudao and Zhou Yebang, were invested by New Oriental, who was my largest institutional investor in my company. VIP Kid, Mi Wenjuan, the founder of VIP Kid, her aunt was one of my customers because she had an offline school. And then when Mi Wenjuan wanted to get into the online business, she actually came and talked to me and my CEO about how to set up that, that business. So, I mean, I know these people on a first name basis. So it was heady times. We had a lot of fun. In 2019, Allo 7 specifically, we had 15 million registered users of our platform. Now, a lot of those came through the B2C platform, you know, being on aggregate sites, the 1.5% sell through that I said. But I think more impressively, we delivered more than 30,000 online classes per week to around 100,000 students. I mean, that's huge <laughs> in terms of total number of students and total number of teachers you need to have to deliver those classes. We worked with more than 10,000 schools and organizations. Our revenue itself was over 35 million US dollars. We secured funding of more than 65 million with a post money valuation of, you know, close to 240 million. So 
that's a quarter of a billion dollars that the company was worth when when we were you know flying high. As for myself, I worked six, seven days a week, but I was happy to do it because we were just doing something that was so cool. Usually I only spent about two days of the week in our headquarters in Shanghai. And the remainder of my week was spent crisscrossing China, giving speeches to principals, teachers, and parents, and hosting conferences, meeting with investors. Allo7 ourselves, we held an annual EdTech conference every single year that was attended by more than 3,000 people each time. Some of our keynote speakers included Leonard Kleinrock, who was one of our investors, as well as Nicholas Negroponte of MIT Media, and even Michael Yu, the new Oriental CEO, along with other education, digital, and investment luminaries. I was interviewed multiple times, once by CNBC. I would regularly pitch potential investors at conferences that were hosted by Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. I mean, EdTech was a darling, and it was a star at the time. It was a booming time. It was really competitive. But that made you sharp. And that's why I didn't mind working those six to seven days a week because this was my baby. You know, the curriculum that I built along with my team, the company that I set up and that I built to see it grow, I didn't want to lose our edge. And so it was go, go, go. In 2019, we had 550 full-time employees, the majority of whom were engineers. We had more than 6,000 part-time teachers around the globe, mainly the U.S. and Canada, but around the globe, delivering synchronous classes to our students which was different from what companies like VIP Kit, they did. So our model was the students would attend an offline class delivered by a Chinese teacher or a foreign teacher, but generally it was Chinese teachers. And then in the same cohort of students, but broken down into one to three, they would have online classes that was concurrent or coincided with the content that they saw in their offline class, which is a different model from VIP Kid, which was more like Uber. It was on demand. Like, I want to have a class now. Every time you're probably going to have a different teacher. The content wasn't related necessarily to what they were learning in their offline classes. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I mean, I think exposure to any language is great. It was just a different system on how we did. And that was also B2B. So we would sell that service into our schools. So yeah, it was fun. It was interesting. I learned so much. And I think we did things in EdTech that, well, in fact, I know we did that aren't being done anywhere else in the world. So it was just really, really inspiring to be part of that and to see how many people we were able to help, not only the students, but also the families of those students. And even, you know, I don't mean to be too grandiose, but even society as a whole, because I think education has the benefit that it's not only teaching that one student, but if you're teaching them properly, they're going to take your learnings out into society and hopefully improve that for the better. You paint a really vivid picture of Chinese ed tech in 2019. As you say, it was, a, it was a darling. There was a ton of money going into it. Big companies growing very quickly, all competing with each other with, as you say, slightly different models, different curricula, different ways of delivering teaching. But the whole ecosystem was just thriving. And it's just tragic, I think, frankly, to see something that has gotten that big and is serving so many students just suddenly the rug just completely get pulled out. It's just it's hard to even get your head around. You've mentioned that, you know, Alice 7 worked closely with some of the really large Chinese public ed techs like New Oriental. And New Oriental ran thousands, maybe even tens of the huge numbers of in-person schools all over China. So tell us about that partnership with New Oriental. You mentioned the idea of sort of distribution through these massive private school creators. And what do you see now that New Oriental, <laughs> after the COVID devil reduction one-two punch, what do you see as the future for companies like New Oriental, which were once enormous? Sure. So I'll take just a step back and say how we cooperated with them first. And then I'll talk about, you know, what I think is their kind of path forward. So Allo7, we created our own content, but as we created it, we tagged each item, whether that was a picture or recording, British English, American English, animation, question. We did that all in our database with meta tags. We developed a database of more than 1 million questions and, you know, millions of digital assets that are attached to each of these questions. So this allowed Allo7 to create bespoke curricula in addition to our core curriculum for institutions that wanted to use their own content. For example, if a school really liked our platform, but had a legacy curriculum that they wanted to continue to use, we could use optical character recognition, pull out all of those learning targets, and our database would could pull from that. And we could do an almost instantaneous digital wrap 
for any, whether it was a reader, whether it was a textbook, whether it was a workbook, whatever. And so that would populate the homework set of all of our related questions and that were pulled from that database. This saved one of my departments, but my curriculum development team, countless man hours when it in an organization did not want to change curricula, but wanted more of a, a modern digital wrap for their legacy books. These digital assets could populate courseware, homework, and even the in-game learning apps that the students engaged with in our virtual world. So to New Oriental's point, and why I wanted to go into that is New Oriental had so many schools, but they were mainly not managed by the headquarters, except with regards to finances. So all the payments went to the central organization, but each independent school or even region had its own decision makers on the what products that they wanted to use and because they knew the population better. You know, in Chongqing, they wanted online courses in, let's say, for example, Chengdu, maybe they didn't want that. So I had to, that was my job was to go out and say, let me open my toolkit. Here are all the tools that we have. Which one would you like to use? And so that's how we worked together with New Oriental. So each city or province had a decision maker and my task in working with them was to show them what we offered. Many chose our standard curriculum like Chongqing. Others just wanted that digital wrap that I talked about for the content that they were already using. And many wanted the parallel online teaching component that we offered, regardless of which content, whether it was their own homegrown content or an off-the-shelf product or our own developed product. So as for their future, I worked mainly with their children's education. So it was Pop English was the the kid's brand for New Oriental. As for their future, I mean, they still have a tight hold on the adult test prep market, which is what they launched with decades ago. So I don't know that they will go away. But if there's not some type of a change or alteration to the current double reduction policy, I don't know that we will ever see a large-scale children's ELL group returning to its previous glory or valuation. There are still small players that are out there, but with that policy in place, and I'm not saying that it's bad or good or whatever. I mean, everyone has their reasons. Every government has the right to make their own decisions and do what's best for their population. But without the, I guess, taking away that policy, I don't see how the children's ELL market will go back to its former self prior to you know, even COVID or the double reduction policy. Wow. Yeah. So I have one final question about this. There's, there's so much to sort of unwrap with all of these ideas, but you've mentioned that some of the things that were happening in Chinese ed tech before the sort of one-two punch of, of COVID and DRP were really innovative ideas. And I mean, I recognize when you're talking about your model versus the on-demand, you know, VipKid model, some of the exact debates we're having right now with high dosage tutoring in the U.S. and how to make it most effective, whether it should be on demand or, or scheduled or or you mentioned, you know, core curriculum versus supplementals and how they could work together. There's so many problems or, you know, issues that you were looking to solve and, and you did solve in China that we face in the U.S. that is faced in Europe, that are faced in Africa. And, you know, this might be a silly way to phrase this, but I remember, you know, for years people would talk about the Chinese as always leapfrogging, they would sort of take technology from around the world and then grab it and then jump past it. And it would, and they'd go right to mobile phones or they'd go right to, to all sorts of new ideas. And it, it strikes me as maybe there's like a reversal here where with the implosion of this Chinese K-12 ecosystem, maybe some of these ideas about how to scale enormously might be relevant for India, perhaps, which is opening many, many in-person learning centers, or the U.S. with our tutoring problem. I'd love to hear you just riff on that. What types of ideas from your experience or from what you saw in China might be useful all over the world? Well, I think personalized learning is extremely important. And when I say that, I mean, the traditional sense of the classroom, I still see that as a valued component within education, whether a teacher is you know, doing role play with students or using flashcards to introduce vocabulary, whether they have a, a smart board or a traditional blackboard. I don't think that that necessarily needs to change. I mean, yes, you can make it more rich with animations and bells and whistles and things. But how students complete their homework now that we have AI and more and I think more importantly and more useful is probably machine learning that once these questions like we did at Allo 7, once they're tagged with the specific skill, reading, listening, speaking, writing, along with the hard target, along with the tense, as a child struggles with homework, 
In the past, it's been, you got that question wrong, do that question again. And that's not a strategy for success at learning anything, language or, or not. And what you can do is test from, a, I guess, different angle, or you can insert their problem things into a game, which is what we did at Allo 7. And so they don't even know that, oh, you got this wrong. It's more about, okay, moving on to the next question. And then you give them a different look the next time. So that works with students who are not necessarily on target or on goal. Another one for students who are mastering content with relative ease, they can unlock more difficult content or even help as a mentor or a guide within that virtual world. This was a trick I used to use in my offline classes. If I had a child who was a behavior problem, a lot of times it was because they were bored and I would allow them to come up to the front and kind of be my, you know, associate teacher at the front of the classroom and allow them to keep score on the scoreboard or be the one to pick out the students to who was going to be asked the next question. It's all about figuring out what motivates the child and motivates the learner. When I think that falls on us as curriculum developers, content designers, ed tech pioneers, the kids aren't wrong. It's we didn't do a good enough job of developing our content or product or, or kind of user experience for that. The other piece, I think that it's allowing the students to gain a sense of achievement and earning like additional awards. You can't look at pure games as the dessert, you know, quote unquote dessert after you have finished eating your hard target, quote unquote vegetables. I think that's a horrible approach. It's not you answered this right. So I'm going to let you play half an hour on your iPad. That's designers being lazy. You should develop something that is a game that's fun for kids and also stays on target. The games themselves and how learners interact with the content should be meaningful. Myself, for my company, I developed a five-star rating system and I used it when working with our product team as they created our different mini apps within the virtual world. A race car game that only had background sound effects that was, you know, speed up, go faster, hold on, you know. I didn't look at that as having any value at all for education. I mean, it's very passive. That got a one star. It was all passive input. And the students didn't have to react to anything that was going on within the game to produce a positive result. Our photography game where students were given an audio prompt in English and had to take a picture of that specific object, I counted that as a four star game. That meant if they're in the Brazilian rainforest and I say, you know, take a picture of a gray monkey and there'd be all these monkeys all over, but there'd only be one gray one. They had to take that. Well, that's showing me that you comprehended meaningfully the input and then you were able to complete a task based on that input that I gave you. And by personalizing, as I mentioned before, by inserting the content that they're having problems with, that's a different way to reinforce that issue. And whether you have a preview page or something like that, that was something that I felt would be, you know, a four star and pretty good representation of how we should be making learning games. We had restaurant games that would have virtual customers come in and make an order and the students had to complete that order. That was also a four-star game. They came in, they told you they wanted something. If you were able to successfully give them what they asked for, then that's completing a task based on some meaningful input. I consider that a four-star game. A five-star game <laughs> in my rubric would be one in which the students create the input themselves and the game changes based on this input like you would see in a choose your own adventure book. And I think that's the most meaningful type of learning application that you can make is it's dependent on the student's input as opposed to the instructor or the program driving it themselves. One of the things I'm hearing in your answer, which I really appreciate is the sort of combination of the power of AI and machine learning and personalization and the fun and interest and motivation and psychology of learning that comes with gaming mechanics. And I think one thing that's so exciting right now is that that five-star game you mentioned about, you know, a student creates an input and the game changes is suddenly extremely easy to imagine when you have a world with these incredible generative AI tools. A kid can say, you know what I like? Rhinoceroses. And it goes, great, let's do an activity with rhinoceroses. And you can just do it right then. That's very easy to imagine in a world of mid-journey and Dali because they can do it. It can make up any animal, any person, any anything. It's really exciting moment. I, I think you'd probably agree. We always end the podcast with a question about, you know, what is a resource? And you can, you know, you can respond to that as well. But what is a resource? It can be a book, a blog, any kind of resource that you would recommend for somebody who wants to learn more about anything we discussed today, which is a wide gamut of ideas. Sure. 
tech and education, well, not necessarily education all the time, but the marriage of education and technology, I think, moves at the speed of light. And so, as you said, we didn't have what chat AI in the past and just within the past two months. I met with one of the deans of the colleges here at the University of Texas just two weeks ago. And I said, what's going on with you? And he said, I'm trying to figure out how to make sure people don't use chat AI to make their dissertations and to do their homework for them when we have issues. And he goes, I have no idea how to solve this problem. And so it was just it was amazing to hear somebody who's been in the education industry for you know, 30, 40 years, high level education industry or not industry, uh, academia to be so that's his top of mind. And the reality is it just came out. So <laughs> I think it's going to be a lot of ethical and administrative and interesting quandaries. I think that we're going to have that we're going to be crossing in the very, very near future. So having said that, books become outdated as soon as they are published. You know, unless you're reading about World War II or something like that, you're talking about what's going to work in the future. I think blogs or news aggregators or something like that are much more beneficial because they, you know, they really have the pulse of current day. One that I really like is GSV N2K EDU. It's a great source of up to date news on ed tech. There were a number of China centric blogs prior to the double reduction policy, like Get China Insights. But they haven't been publishing. You know, I went and looked. They haven't published, I think, since May of last year or, or even earlier than that. Although it is interesting to kind of reminisce and go down memory lane and see what we were doing way back when and what the topics were during that time. So it's a nice snapshot of what was going on then. But in terms of China specific blogs with EdTech, I think once the money left and once the companies dried up, there was obviously less of a demand for those. So if somebody's looking for some up-to-date information, and I am sure that you are well aware of GSV N2K EDU, it's my go-to. I'm a subscriber to their mailer. And if you want to learn anything else or are interested in contacting me, feel free to reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Schubart. You can look at my profile and feel free to ask me any questions regarding you know, where we're going and where we went and what I think would be beneficial to EdTech going forward based on my 25 years of experience in uh, China. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm sure our listeners will take you up on that and they can find you on LinkedIn. And yes, I am a big fan of GSV and 2KEDU. It actually comes out daily, I think almost every day. So that's that shows the speed of which EdTech News is going. And we do a week in EdTech podcast and we have to look at a lot of different aggregators and different sources to try to figure out what's going on. And that's one of the absolute best ones. So I think it's a fantastic suggestion. Andrew Schubert, this has been really interesting and really a very unique conversation for this podcast. We have never talked about the Chinese EdTech system in any detail. And I feel like I have a very different understanding of this idea of world exploration and creativity and joy and personalization. It's just such a lovely and, you know, optimistic way to see education in one of the largest societies in the world. Let's all hope that, you know, things progress in terms of ed tech. I hope that that opens up again and they rethink a little bit about the DRP. But until then, we'll all have to just wait and see. But it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. And Andrew Schubart on LinkedIn. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, Alex. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter on Substack.